0: Hey guys welcome back to another episode of the all things strength and wellness podcast i am your host as always robbie burke and before we get into today's show i just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors firstly upmentorship.com which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today the ultimate performance mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout-out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming; Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Programme Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Once again, James Smith from Global Sport Concepts rejoins us for his monthly interview on the all things strength and wellness podcast on this episode james discusses the concept of mentoring uh, i personally asked james to speak about this topic as i feel he has some unique views when it comes to the concept of mentorship so as always guys this was another outstanding episode with james and i hope you really really enjoyed james smith as always an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you back on the podcast. So today's topic, and before we get into the topic, I'll obviously ask how you're doing, but today's topic will be about mentors and mentorship, and um, which I'm really looking forward to because I know that you have um, some opinions that uh, you would like to, to share. Well, I want you to share anyway, so I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts on that and getting that into the listeners. Before we get into that, how is everything in the world of James Smith?
1: Going well, continuing to pursue various consulting endeavors, laying the groundwork for others as it goes.
0: Great stuff, short and concise, I love it. Not okay. for long. <laughs> Not for, yeah, yeah.
1: The uh, short and concise won't last long. <laughs>
0: uh, short and concise and humor, James, too, to, to, uh-huh. and what's, what's going on today? Uh but anyway, listen, uh, delighted again, as always, to have you back on for your, your monthly episode. And uh, the topic that I proposed this month was uh, mentorship. So I, I really want to, as I've already said, get your ideas and concepts across to the listeners. So basically, what are your thoughts on mentorship? Um, and just take it away.
1: Let's begin with a first principles examination of what the what the domain consists of. A natural question would be if one subscribes to the notion that there's a utility function to be fulfilled by serving an apprentice role under someone who is perceived to be more knowledgeable, then it's it's logical to assume that one of the first questions it is well who's to say which mentor knows what how to choose a mentor what distinguishes one mentor from the next and then of course that leads us to the implicit problem of empiricism which will invariably link to that line of questioning well what's this person's achievements what's this person's experience and those in whom Popper's refutation of empiricism resonates well, must at the outset agree that the achievements and the experiences of any individual serve as no viable corollary to their knowledge nor their ability to explain the extent to which they understand the subject matter. This what this brings us to, Robbie, is what I mentioned offline before we started recording, is the the logic of implication, which which falls under the domain dena- the domain of propositional logic or sentential logic. This is something that I've been thinking about as I stated a lot recently, and what what is what, what is essentially lying at, at the bedrock of correct reasoning is that if a premise is true, the, co- the conclusion cannot be false. That's sort of the, the, the singular truth claim of this domain of logic. What Popper went on to refute was a, a subject under the logic of implication, which is to state that you cannot affirm a consequence. So if I give a little vocabulary backbone you have premises such as an if-then statement regarding the logic of implication. And so if I begin with an if-claim and then follow with a then-claim, if follows the antecedent, then precedes the consequent. What logic tells us is that For instance, if we just use the alphabet characters A and B, if A, then B. So if A is my antecedent, then B is my consequent. And from there, we begin to rationalize or refute what the the various assumptions are that follow these lines of implication. And so at, at the bedrock, what's accepted is affirming the antecedent, which is to say, if A, then B, A, therefore B. What Popper went on to refute is how what we cannot do is affirm the consequent. And this essentially is what outlines and distinguishes what Popper referred to as the demarcation between science and, say, philosophy is the fact that science must be falsifiable, it must be refutable. Otherwise, it's metaphysical or supernatural, something which cannot be refuted. And, and what I'm working my way towards pointing out here is one of the grand fallacies of sport in which when one adopts a logical perspective, you see how much nonsense in a logical reference frame exists and has always existed in sport due to just how many perceptions in sport are built upon affirming the consequent. So in, in, in words, affirming the consequent could look something like if I coach in such a way, we'll win the game. We won the game. Thus it's because I coached in this way.
2: Yeah.
1: This is affirming the consequent, and according to the rules of correct reasoning, that's defined as invalid and a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Because what you must acknowledge is how many other potential reasons there are to affirm the consequent apart from the one that you're claiming. So it's a basic rule of logic that says we cannot utilize Just in simple language, we cannot utilize the result as a mode of affirming what was done to achieve it.
0: So essentially, it's what a lot of people talk about in terms of uh, misinterpreting causation with correlation.
1: That's exactly right. And you can see how confirmation bias emerges from this invalid fallacy. Of course this this ties directly into the you know how i must answer your question or how i will choose to because if you if you ask yourself what what is in my best interest in terms of furthering my knowledge part of that response to yourself must be To ensure that who or what I am surrounding myself by or immersing myself within is of the highest value in terms of let's let's narrow the discussion towards knowledge, the most relevant knowledge. So therefore, who's to say who's to say so and so is representative of this type of knowledge if you accept the refutation of empiricism, which is to state, okay, experience now will not take part in my decision-making. Achievement has no part in my decision-making. So how then to determine who knows what, what mode of criteria And of course, my argument is one that is built upon the right set of criticism that enables one to effectively discern one thing from the next. And ultimately, this stems in part from what can be gained by developing a deeper understanding of logic.
2: Mm.
1: As I I explained off air, this is the reason why... In the Western classical education, logic was one of the three domains of the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, logic, logic being the mechanics of thought. Unfortunately, over time, it is lost. It is no longer as relevant in early education and in some cases simply non-existent. And this is one explanation for the volume of fallacies that exist in our institutions. The information is available, and it's a matter of each individual immersing themselves in it so as to formulate a, let's call it a philosophical bedrock of rational thinking, That allows one to get a step on discerning information, even if you're not already read up or knowledgeable on the subject matter. The absence of this, the the absence of simply a bedrock of rational discourse serving as a foundational element in any institution, sport being one, the absence of this is an abomination because what you have to ask yourself and then is because we know it is not a fundamental prerequisite, which is to state, we know that the individuals who hire coaches are not fundamentally required to have high proficiency in say correct reasoning as it applies to the, the rules of intelligent discourse, thus nor are, the people who these administrators are hiring. So now if we if we follow with in the most conservative estimate is an assumption which would which, which I would I would state more strongly is much more than an assumption, but let's just say it's an assumption then that the vast majority of these sport institutions are operating without a foundational bedrock of correct reasoning skills then we have to go further and assume that what they are operating on is a basis of some level of irrationality. that that's something closer to the
2: meta
1: excuse me metaphysical or supernatural. Because if, for example, a sport coach and a strength coach and a physio and a psychologist, know very little about each other's domain, nor are they proficient in the skill of correct reasoning, then what dynamic is serving as the connector between their interaction and what you have to assume, and, and those who have this understanding that have knowledge of this or are part of it understand that it's much different than an assumption. It's actually the truth that everyone is essentially operating on some level of a faith claim, which is to state that the empiricist foundations that are rendering some level of value to this person's experience is enough to compensate for the fact that I, the head sport coach, don't really understand much about physiotherapy so i'm just going to trust that my physiotherapist with their credentials air quotes empiricism is enough to constitute their competency meanwhile the 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 psychologist who doesn't know much about bioenergetic biomotor biodynamic foundations takes it for granted that this other person with this other set of credentials has knowledge because of their credentials. So there's, it's faith claim, faith claim, faith claim, faith claim because the, the rules of correct reasoning are not substantiating the cultural bedrock communication vehicle that exists between departments nor is deep knowledge of the adjacent realms. So, so what then does exist? Well, it has to be some level of, of belief, trust, faith, all of which share in common, the, the acceptance of some presses premise void of sufficient evidence, void of proof. So in, the context in which I'm making my argument, we have one gigantic fallacy. How how then are, are we weaving this back into the mentor apprenticeship process by the same mode of thinking? This is this is a, this is a universal premise, which is to state by what mode is the aspiring apprentice utilizing? to determine the correct path to take with some mentor if this future apprentice neither has already the knowledge which of course you wouldn't you would not be seeking a mentor if you already have it nor the a different type of knowledge in this case what I'm making the argument for of this mode of propositional logic and the logic of implication, and and just more broadly, rational thinking and the rules that associate with correct reasoning that allow for a high-level discussion or argument to take place in the first place. So ask yourself then, you know, just how blind behind the wheel all apprentices have been who have not been in possession of this foundational level of knowledge in logic that I'm describing, you you simply, there's no other way around this discussion than to say, well, well, clearly then, void, let's just call it of, you know, the, the rational knowledge of argument, void of that, and void of any predetermined amount of knowledge in a given subject matter. So if you lack the capacity to effectively criticize and argue and you lack the knowledge of the specific subject matter domain which you are going after, what do you expect to accomplish? You, you have to be taking information in on faith Because you neither have the ability to effectively criticize it because you already know or simply because you understand the rules of correct reasoning. So this must occupy the discussion. This must be brought to the front lines of thinking and dialogue and ultimately problem solving as it pertains to this process because you simply cannot operate on the basis of achievement. It it is a... In all cases in which the achievement is not, for all intents and purposes, inextricably linked to the rigors of intellectual thinking, rational thinking, rational argument, correct reasoning, logic, etc., As we diverge farther and farther away from that domain, there's no other way around recognizing the fact that you're honoring empiricist truth claims, as fallacious as they are, as being the vehicle for assuming that someone has the knowledge that you seek. And as I explained, uh, apart from results that are just directly linked to what has thus far been a line of thinking that is held up against every possible attempt to refute it of some intellectual domain, a- apart from that, You have to acknowledge that the achievement that you're holding in some high value could have happened for many other reasons than the one you think. And the one that you think is that such and such coach or individual is actually knowledgeable. That's what you think falsely if you subscribe to empiricism according to their achievements or according to their experience. But what we know from this basic rule of the logic of implication where it is an inv- it's invalid and a fallacy to affirm the consequent, you can no longer do that. So now it's a question then if you throw out experience and you throw out achievement and accolade and all these things that are commonly associated and viewed as synonymous with individuals of high knowledge and worth – in value, given the subject matter we're discussing. If you're willing to throw that away, then you must accept and and at least be willing to entertain the argument that I'm making that the the most effective course of action is to increase simply your knowledge of argument, logic-based argument, Correct reasoning Rational discourse Such that at the very least You can criticize And some particular Mentor of your choosing In order to determine the, The quality of their explanation Now as you know I'm critical of the idea of any particular individual serving a mentor role due to the built-in set of constraints that are aligned with just simply the potential for any single individual just due to limitations in bandwidth to know what is knowable across the amount of domains that are necessary to constitute the aggregate that serves as the most robust platform to have skill in just about anything. We, we know that the limitations, even in a, a very narrow specialty field, are built into specialist knowledge due to the implicit confirmation bias that arises from only doing the same thing over and over again in a A really profound quote that I took from mathematical physicist Eric Weinstein is that while the jack of all trades is the master of none, the jack of one trade is the connector of none. And I think that's very profound and deserves a lot of deep thinking in terms of any accolades or merit one assigns towards any individual's specialty knowledge due to the implicit limitations that are built in to the concept of specialization. It's my judgment that it is a fallacy to seek an apprenticeship due to what I've just explained and what is much more logical is to first encourage anyone who might otherwise have been interested to educate themselves on logic, reasoning, correct reasoning, such that a platform for rational discourse and thinking is developed, and then this is what allows for more effective criticism and discerning of information, of new knowledge, thereby mitigating the likelihood of individuals being led astray. the you know, as we've talked about, and is as widely recognized as it could possibly be, simply having access to the Internet, gives anyone access to effectively the whole of knowledge that is knowable, given the fact that the, the amount which has been uploaded one way or another is just so beyond as I mentioned earlier, the bandwidth of any sim- single individual, we, we could go back. The question is how far would we have to in time, you know, before the printing press, mm-hmm. before modes of sharing information across vast distances around the world, how far would we go back until it's actually a rational claim to make, that certain individuals knew everything that was knowable there there is a point in history where we would go back to and say that's actually a rational claim to make because you know they were let's yes let's say they had not yet developed the use of horses or carrier pigeons to carry information from one part of the world to another and before ships and so on and so forth and we just look at localized populations of individuals, so what was known in a given geographical location was essentially all that was knowable simply because there was no access in any meaningful way, time-sensitive or otherwise, to other parts of the world. And so therefore, it's not irrational to state that at some point in history, there was individuals who knew every language, n- knew every meaningful thing to know about astronomy. Granted, the the magnitude of what that consisted of is you know infinitesimal compared to what is knowable these days. However, the reason why that was achievable is is self explanatory. Conversely, here we exist today where just simple access to the Internet grants anyone, anywhere in the world who has access to the Internet access to essentially everything that was ever known. And the the colossal magnitude of this far exceeds the bandwidth of any human being to possibly assimilate. And so therein lies the rub. How... To grapple with it. How to ask the proper questions. What, what is the path that leads to the type of question asking. That rewards one with the information they're actually looking for. Or the information that is in their best interests to discover, etc. And that that brings us back to the, the knowledge Necessary to argue rationally, to present logical statements, to criticize rationally, logically, to reason correctly. This is why credit to the smart people who devised the classical education included logic, grammar, which we discussed in our last podcast. And rhetoric, which is the essentially the use of language to persuade. Grammar, rhetoric, logic were the foundations of the classical education. And they have been lost over time. And, of course, my argument is essentially to bring them back to the forefront, certainly not to the exclusion of all other domains which rightly earned their place at the table However, to to reignite the significance of, for instance, grammar and logic due to how irrefutably implicated they are in the subject matter we are discussing.
0: It's just a a question that uh, came to me, obviously, as you were talking there. How can you distinguish them between an influence and a mentor, and, and I suppose how I would ask that is like you often mention David, David Deutsch, and how profound his work has been on you. Like, how can you like, how can you draw that line between someone of his stature being an influence and that he's not that you don't like take what he says unquestionably or like, um, like uh, I'm sure that, you know, you hold him in such high regard, but I'm I'm sure that you you still would question him due to you know, your sort of foundations in grammar, logic, and and rhetoric. But I suppose, like, w- where, like, I suppose it's a double-edged sword. Like, I mean, you don't want to be so sort of closed off that you don't let anything sort of, you know, have some sort of, inf- not influence, but some sort of it stimulates thought process within you, but at the same time that it doesn't lead you to, like taking things unquestionably. So sort of that double that short. So again, I suppose just to propose it to you, like just using David Deutsch as an example, like where does that line draw between influence versus like mentor? If, you know, if if that kind of makes sense,
1: I would encourage you, Robbie and you know, anyone with whom your, your question resonates to, to assume a completely different perspective which is to state, if you assume this different perspective, you would not ask me that question in that way. Mm-hmm. It, it It's the explanatory knowledge that is the link to one's understanding. And the more one understands the, the truth of that statement, and the greater the capacity of one to critically analyze, you know, which brings us back to you know, the different podcasts we've had in terms of critical thinking. The greater one's capacity to critically analyze information, the greater the leg up that individual has on discerning the explanatory value of any particular individual's repertoire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the, the the so for example, the reason why For me, going back, say, 15 years, it was just so immediate to me that sport was operating at such a pandemic level of dysfunction in so many different ways was because I had absolutely no institutionalization from that dysfunctional community. Here, I'm an individual who came out of music college in the military and was fortunate to have assembled my own self-education in such a way where I was not cons- constrained by any particular set of narrow myopic reference frames of thinking. So, so much of my criticism of sport obviously has to do with the, the absence of r- rational thinking, knowing what is knowable, and, and ultimately, essentially... It exists based upon dogma and received wisdom in the large part. And the reason why this was so clear to me initially and why I entered the profession essentially criticizing everything along with my suggested solutions to the problem was because I was fortunate to have not been misled at the outset. So... Instead of thinking, you know, what is the line of demarcation between influence and mentor, what I'm encouraging you to think of is simply developing a mode of criticizing explanatory knowledge. The the scientific reference frame provides us with the Knowledge that if a particular theory is not falsifiable, it's not scientific. (laughs) Knowledge such as that provides an extraordinary starting point from which to follow because if you recognize that the claim being offered is not falsifiable. Then, what you're dealing with is some metaphysical, supernatural, faith based nonsense
2: mm-hmm.
1: that just simply cannot be refuted. So, this is an example of knowledge that individuals can assimilate in order to begin to take steps towards determining. You, you know, you bring up physicist David Deutsch. You could say, how would a non-physicist prepare themselves to determine the knowledge of a—not only just any physicist, but a a a, highly—a physicist whose work is held in very high esteem from other physicists, and even more importantly— holds up very strongly against being refuted. You know, philosopher Karl Popper, what he he demonstrated was the the truth that this kind of goes towards you cannot affirm the, the consequent. There is no scientific theory that is actually provable. All that can be done through modes of criticism and experiment and so on is disproving a theory. This is all science can do is show what is not true. Science does not show what is true. It confirms predictions, but not to a certainty. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's really only in mathematics in which we have this concept of a proof in which you can prove through intellectual mathematical rigor the truth of a given mathematical claim in a way that you cannot in essentially any other domain, for instance, of knowledge.
0: Hence P values.
1: So all you can do is essentially confirm and continue the attempts to refute. And basically every theory, scientific one that we have that is still viable either in its whole or in part, is due to the way in which it holds up against criticism. Mm -hmm. So carrying this knowledge forth into any other domain of discourse, you, you can clearly see the value in it in order to just simply develop a filter by which to discern who's worth listening to and ultimately, what, what I'm cer- – certainly I am not the originator of this line of thinking. I'm simply an advocate for it, that it's the explanatory content, the, the explanatory knowledge that any individual possesses. That is the barometer. That is the standard by which to hold anyone against specifically in the context of domains in which knowledge is the determining factor. I, I state that because clearly it would be erroneous for me to claim this being a universal truth beyond domains in which knowledge is the determining factor. I mean, it, it, it serves no value to, to hold this as a criteria as to whether Usain Bolt really is the fastest or not. All that matters is that he's the fastest. Whether or not Usain Bolt knows what the answer to 2 plus 2 is has no relevance in the context of his achievements because his achievements exist at such a distance from the relevance of knowledge. Knowledge has nothing to do with that particular athlete and his achievements or any other athlete or any other individual whose profession is not steeped in particular knowledge. And this, this is where we get into the philosophical discussion of how are we, how do we distinguish skills and abilities and knowledge and other attributes? And, you know, this essentially is what explains how someone Usually it's in tactile physical domains. It's an easy example to use. Someone could be very good at doing a thing, meanwhile having very little knowledge about that thing. It should that should be relatively intuitive to people.
2: Yeah.
1: For you know, just because there is a Richie McCaw playing number eight in rugby, one of the greatest of all time, and a Usain Bolt, and you go down the list of great athletes in different sports, there is absolutely no logical reason to believe that any of these athletes is the one that you want to listen to up on the podium giving a seminar on the mechanisms of the sport and they play because there's absolutely no reason to believe that they absolutely have any clue at all of the, let's, let's call it a first principles explanation of the sport. There's no reason at all to assume there's that knowledge and someone's ability to do that thing. Well, due to the differences between what allows, for instance, a mathematician to prove some rigorous theorem, which is, directly linked to a specific type of knowledge whereas in for example this athletic context you know w- w- one might be able to to reach and and do some you know taut- tautological wordplay to to attempt to make an argument that the ability to be highly competitive in a given sport is an example of a particular type of knowledge Maybe one could play around with words in order to make that plain. Ultimately, what I am making the effort here to distinguish between is how someone can do a thing very well and actually have very little knowledge of that thing. And it just so happens to be that coaching is one of those things. And therein lies the rub because any coach is invariably working with one or more athletes – and due to the adaptive capabilities of the athletes an extraordinary compensating mechanism exists so it is absolutely within reason to make the argument that even a coach with let's say 20 years of experience and 10 championships under their belt or if it's a, let's say it's a coach of an olympic athlete who's coached 10 different gold medalists. It is, it is within reason to argue that even that type of coach in the team, the combat, the individual, whatever sport realm, with all those accolades, it is possible that that coach is incompetent. And just so happened, now when I say incompetent, I'm obviously squaring that against my argument in the governing dynamics of coaching of what constitutes objective competency. We, what we know is due to the adaptive capabilities of athletes that a coach could for whatever reason, because again, we know that it is invalid and a fallacy to affirm the consequent. So it's, it's invalid and a fallacy to affirm the, the significance of these gold medals, of these championships. And what we know from this is that it is possible that that coach could have, for other reasons, been associated with the achievements of the, those teams of that athlete. For example... If the coach is savvy with, say, social networking and political leveraging, they find their way to a position of coaching prominence. And if only then, let's say they have some personality traits that attracts very talented athletes in an individual sport sense or in a a team sport sense. They happen to have, let's just say, leadership qualities that are sufficient to keep a group of athletes in a team sport, say, working together with determination over a period of time, and if they're intrinsically talented enough, success will follow even if that coach who is savvy with their wordplay and social networking and maybe even has certain leadership qualities, but let's say has absolutely little to no understanding of psychology and sensory motor foundations and perceptual awareness and technical advancement and skill loading, engineering, work re- recovery, all these other attributes that I argue is serving as the governing dynamics, this coach could conceivably have zero knowledge of those, but have simply positioned themselves in such a way to always be around and part of the successes of these athletes who are achieving that excess success either in the team sport or the individual sport realm, not because of, but in spite of the fact that the coach lacks the knowledge in all of these governing dynamics. That is possible, and and as difficult of a pill as that might be to swallow, that it's even possible in these individual sport realms where you'd think there's much less room to to essentially fake your way through. And the, and the reason is because you're just always in a position to work with this. Other individual, so immediately it's a multivariate process. And this other individual, which is to say, this athlete, the more talented they are, the greater the compensating mechanism that individual serves against insufficiencies in coaching knowledge. So, because of this, I encourage everyone listening to simply not accept at face value that experience or the achievements of a coach. Have any value whatsoever, given the subject matter we are discussing?
0: How much weight do you put in then to things like people skills and emotional intelligence, and you know, because again, like I, I, I know, like I fully understand, like where you're coming from in terms of peeling everything back to like uh, uh, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and and then like you know, basically like everything. Basically, just boils down to physics and maths if you want to get to the truth of things. But like, so many people are like, what kind of comes to mind is almost um, Jordan Belford, The Wolf of Wall Street, like manipulation of people because like basically so many people just run their lives through emotion rather than being logical. So I mean, would you say that if somebody as such as yourself, if everybody could get onto a similar wavelength of like peeling everything back to listen, if I can bring everything back to first principles. I know that my bullshit detector is going to be huge and that I won't let my emotional brain or my emotions sort of dictate like who I should believe or what I should believe. Because I know logically that if I understand things through the lens of science and maths that I can get to the truth. So like, I mean, the if everybody was operating at that level, you, like, is there a role for emotion? Is there a role for like, you know, people skills, quote unquote, like what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: as as humans, as higher order primates, we are all emotive beings. So apart from the sociopaths and the psychopaths among us. so there's there's no getting away from that. the The, the key is as is, is your call from our you know what I talked about in psychological preparation,
2: mm.
1: is the effective management, the self-regulatory ability to to essentially, disallow emotional engagement. This is my argument. I I in no way am in a position to speak on the basis of absolutes here. My my argument is that the most sensible course of action is to disallow emotional content of of any significance to play a role in the most important Mm -hmm. decision-making. Simply because as emotional arousal increases there, there is unavoidably a decrement in Logical capacity r- rational processes It's a, a simple example of this is There's a reason why there are behavioral stereotypes associated with individuals who operate in pr- professions in which the implications of bad decision-making, which is to say, let me rephrase that, the implications of a lack of emotional management are profound. And that's why I, I list those in the book and and in uh, other types of conversation. It, it's not a stretch to think what, what any individual accepts out of hand and, and likely even admires in certain cases about particular coaches being unable to regulate their emotions, which, you know, there's another word for that, and it's called passionate. Because if you look up the definition of passionate, you'll get something to the effect of uncontrollable or unstable emotion. Now, consider the irony in why that level of emotional in this case you know uncontrollability outburst is in many cases celebrated
2: mm-hmm. in
1: terms of in terms of passionate coaching yeah. whereas almost no one would want to celebrate that same quality in their next airline pilot yeah. or air traffic controller or surgeon that's going to operate on a loved one or the person who handles their finances
2: yeah.
1: It's it's very easy to think. Okay, right. I do not want the next pilot of the commercial airliner I'm flying from point A to point A to point B with to, to be so operating on such a poor level of self-regulatory emotional management that that any given environmental situation they encounter or news from air traffic control is going to send them into a sp- sp- spinning outburst tirade that's a dime a dozen on the sidelines of, of any team sport coaching match and viewed as having nowhere near the same implications, which is why it's celebrated as a passionate coach. Meanwhile, no one wants to think about the that pilot or his, his or her co-pilot in the cockpit similarly freaking out No one wants to think about that even being possible. Nor do they want to think that about the air traffic controllers who are in part coordinating who knows how many of these commercial airliners in their airspace at any given time. Nor do they want to know that that's even possible about the surgeon who's got, say, their child on the operating table. They want to know that no matter what happens, that individual is calm, cool, collected, and in a psychological disposition to make the most rational decision. Thus, while there's no separating the fact that we are emotive beings from our behavior, the, the, the real question is, to what level are people prepared psychologically to regulate this part of ourselves that is so valuable that is so linked to our human experience in the world and all that goes with it to what extent are people educated in this this completely attainable realm of you know behavioral modification changing impulses quite literally resizing the, the volumetric space of these various subcortical regions of our brain that are the principal modulators of psychological stress regulation how, how many people are aware of the tenability of improving this capacity of self-regulation as an example and and thereby optimizing their decision making because effectively Robbie I would I would go so far as to state that there is, there is no possibility to regret or however you want to look at that concept. Some people don't believe in the, the the very premise of regret. However you'd want to phrase that negatively criticize a decision you make in the past. The, The probability of making a decision that is the unfavorable unfavorable one in the grand objective spe- scheme only increases in proportion in some proportion to the level of emotion that contributed to that decision alternatively the more objectively one imparts their efforts To make the best possible decision, the lesser on the one half, on the one, on the front end, the lower the probability that it'll be the wrong decision to begin with. And even if it is, the fact that the due diligence was imparted to remain objective, to exhaust all modes of rational thinking and problem solving, the fact that that was part of the process is what also serves to mitigate the possibility of looking back on the consequence of what turned out to be the wrong decision in any negative context because simply you, you are, are sitting well with the knowledge that you imparted your best objective thinking towards the process and not, not the alternative to that, which is some level of irrationality. Which is, which is almost inseparable, the more emotional one becomes. It, it is nearly inseparable to, to attempt to distinguish irrationality from emotional arousal. And, and we all know this just in the subjective sense in terms of if we think, what decisions did any of us make the saddest we ever were? the the most angry we ever were the you know you begin to fill in the blanks with other other emotions and immediately you go back to thinking oh yeah those are some of the worst decisions ever made I made Some, some of the things I'm I'm most embarrassed about having done you know they're all in some way shape or form related to an emotional extreme never let me rephrase almost never would Would one associate just the exhaustion of, you know, rational discourse, objective thinking, problem solving criticism? Almost never would one associate that with a level of, say, shame or embarrassment or just purely objective, negative assessment of decision made. Be, because of the implicit rationality that's associated with that whole domain, so it's the the because of, often what happens, Robbie, in my consultation is I I tend to dismantle belief systems, and when someone is is on the receiving end of a belief system being dismantled, defenses go up, mm-hmm. and it, it actually uh, even affects people's ab- actual perception. it'll actually affect what you are actually hearing at a foundational level and the, the, the more iconoclastic and individual an individual's arguments are, the more likely the responses to these arguments tend to polarize what they're saying when in fact what they're saying is not polarizing. So for example, the, the the more powerful a belief system i might be dismantling say to a listener they could very easily due to their skewed perception of the biases that they've they might even be unconscious about that exist within them they could very easily come away from one of these podcasts thinking oh that james think that james smith guy he thinks we should all be robots and that emotions serve no purpose at all which would be a complete misinterpretation of what I'm saying, which is, of course, the self-regulatory ability to effectively pick and choose to what extent emotional engagement serves as an ingredient and to what level in one's decision-making in one's psyche in one's experience there's there's really no point in which an an utter or absolute separation can occur because we are emotive beings and and apart from some minority of psychopath sociopath let's say who's just operating way on one extreme end of the spectrum in terms of the the inability the inability to say to empathize On on some level, everyone who is not checking a box in one of the categories of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, which categorically defines a given mental disorder, provided one is not checking the box of one of those in their neurological examination, then we all know that on some level, we are all empathizing to some degree or another the, the the key is t- to what level of control, what level of self-regulatory observation, evaluation, and impulse changing we have undertaken to be able to remain as objective as possible in a given circumstance. So, Robbie, the role that emotion, behavior, communication, there is a profound role that all these different attributes play. And as I explained in the governing dynamics of coaching, the psychosocial, emotional, behavioral domain is an enormous component of coaching competency. It's that on its own, it fails to render one as being competent due to all of the other, let's just call them objective reference frames regarding the, the mechanical, the technical, et cetera. So I am not presenting a polarizing argument. I am not suggesting that you everyone attempt to shut one part of themselves off and t- to become the, the best possible version of some artificial general intelligence that simply is not operating on the basis of emotion that's just simply an irrational proposition because we are emotive beings. The, the point is that we all have an ability to regulate the degree to which emotion plays a role in our human experience, in yeah. our behavior, in our discourse. And that's, that's the rub. There, therein lies the rub.
0: Yeah, and the example you gave on a previous podcast on the mental preparation episode was, you know, the, the it was an extreme example, but it was about the baby being you know killed in a car crash, mm. being hit down by a car, and you were saying that the only difference between you staying emotionally stable and someone freaking out is that you know you kind of have trained yourself and made the decision to be that emotionally mature and prepared for that that you could con- 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 control your emotions so. Yeah, I think that's an important point to get across. Is that you're not, as you, uh, nicely closed up there with saying that, you know, you're not saying that we should have absolutely no emotion and be robots like some type of form of artificial intelligence. It's just that emotion is important. It it's the skill of being able to regulate it. Um, I suppose then, J- James. I mean, uh, like, where can people like? And I know we touched on this, but, and I know you're 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 not someone who likes to give any cookie cutter advice to use that sort of term but again like there's people like myself there uh, and i've asked you on, on some occasions through emails and all like where do we start like so is it like basically here here's a basic beginner's book in physics here's a basic beginner's book in maths i'm i don't know anything about physics and maths really uh, like to be able to be to be able to make more sense of the reality that is around me and to be able to have a better filter uh, of reality again um, and then off that too i mean just another question that came up was you know we are born into the world as babies and there obviously is going to be an element of trust there in our guardians and i suppose like it's it's you know it's nearly sort of like in your own mind you can kind of step back and be like see how tragic it is that again like it's the blind leading the blind and that like most kids subconsciously start getting traits of the people who you know are most influential in their lives so again like and when you're a kid you're so you're so unconditional that you can't question things so it's like how do we like so two questions is where can someone where who are listening to this right now where can they start on their journey to become better at perceiving reality and making better decisions based on what is known i know you're going to say it's going to come down to knowledge but what knowledge does that person to know is it maths is it science is that you know there's science is it physics and then going forward is it a case that just like these people then need to be the people who are the future parents to kids and need to know when they're raising their kids that like this is the sort of platform foundation we want our kids to be born into is that you know, ones of logic, uh, grammar, and rhetoric rather than emotion and just the basic shit show that's going on right now in the world.
1: It it turns out that that actually the the two questions you asked are covered by the same answer. Perfect. (laughs) And and it's that the evolutionary biology at present is uncovering more and more evidence that in fact – because the thing is, Robbie, c- culture, c- cultural expansion is going to answer your first question, and knowledge of evolutionary biology essentially refutes part of your second question, which is that it turns out that parenting actually plays much less of a role in the psychobehavioral outcome of children than what it was historically perceived mm. in that there is so much cultural knowledge passed through DNA regarding ancestry, that the behavioral outcome of children has much more to do with the genetic ancestry coupled with their influence of their peer group and much less to, if you were looking to these at percentages, I'm not sure what it maps out to be in terms of just generalities, but what was historically viewed what we were all under the, because, you know, the knowledge at any given time and the more aware of one is of what is knowable, that's what we know we are parroting. Everyone was under the assumption that the role that parenting plays is profound with respect to psycho-emotional behavior outcome. Well, what evolutionary biology seems to be showing is that's actually not the case that so long as the, the basic needs are met, you know, food, shelter, nurturing. Be- beyond this, it is the, as I stated, genetic ancestry coupled with the influence of peer group that has the largest implications, the largest effect on psychosocial, emotional, behavioral outcomes, which so what I'm talking about here is the same things. It's the cultural influence. So we understand that at its base level, culture is a set of ideas. Mm-hmm. This is something that physicist David Deutsch has explained so brilliantly, brilliantly in, particularly in the beginning of infinity. And more broadly speaking, evolutionary biology refers to it as bits of information that are passed from one member species to another throughout genetic ancestry. We can look it up in Oxford Dictionary and get some version of the, the, the arts, the aesthetics, the collective of human intellectual achievement. Absolutely everything is culture. And as I said, from a first principles standpoint, it is a set of ideas. And you can expand that as broadly as you want to include absolutely everything, everything thinkable That could potentially serve as a cultural influence. Something that is seen or taken part in regarding a peer group experience or conversation or from parents or on television or on the radio or in a movie or in a play, seen in an artwork, tasted in food. I mean, absolutely every part of this intellectual experience including what we receive coming into the world with regarding our genetic ancestry, which appears to play the lion's share in terms of our long-term outcomes is encapsulated by culture. The answer to the first question, how does one go about this is by having the deepest possible knowledge the deepest possible cultural experience. The more one learns about this set of ideas that constitutes culture, which is to state everything, the more one learns about the arts, the aesthetics, dance, music, theater, gastronomy, you just through the list, all the science, technology, engineering, mathematics, absolutely everything. This was the brilliance of the classical education, the trivium and the quadrivium, because once you get through grammar, rhetoric, and logic, you proceed to arithmetic, geometry, music, or harmony, and astronomy. What you know, just what a great progression. And of course we can we can build upon that with all that is knowable today. And and essentially it is. You know, this would be my response, is just simply have the broadest, deepest possible cultural experience and then determine along the way what resonates with each individual the most and do more of that. If I'm, if I'm speaking of my own personal experience, I was fortunate to be a product of this incredible music college in which I had this incredible immersion into not only aesthetics, because there is a, a highly mathematical, analytical, rigorous component to music theory in understanding this. And so I, I had an excellent exposure to both sides in college, and then coupled w- coupling that with my own affinity for languages, for travel, for gastronomy for physics, for mathematics. I'm, I'm completely a product of self-education in all these realms. And I have been fortunate to have recognized at a, a relatively early age what resonated most with me and simply pursued those subject matter fields on my own. And in the very concept of school or a formal education depending in which context we define it is, is just simply an ordered introduction of this. So if, if we were to say that all of a sudden we were to snap our fingers and no institution in the world assigned any particular relevance to an undergraduate set of credentials or a postgraduate set of credentials, if, if for sake of argument that was just thrown out the window and all that mattered was aptitude and knowledge. Simply you have the aptitude and the knowledge to do such and such job or you don't. And the way that we determine that is through an approximation of you doing the job itself with the right type of structured selection criteria, et cetera. This is actually part of what I do for consulting. Then all that would matter is aptitude, knowledge, and depending upon what is in question, any other abilities. And what that would then open the floor for, which is what I suspect is going to occupy much more of the landscape, broadly speaking, moving forward in terms of self-education, is simply people developing no matter how they develop it. Because now we're saying school does not matter. It's simply that you take it upon yourself to self-teach and amass the resources and surround yourself with the right type of people or technological resources or otherwise that allows you to develop those aptitudes that knowledge set as it pertains to your interest and that's all that matters either you're able to do it or not and and in my argument this is what you know this is just another refutation against the part of empiricism that's really handicapping most organizations is to make clear that in any profession, all that matters, whether someone can be excellent in that profession or not, is the requisite aptitude, knowledge, and whatever other skills and abilities are associated with that particular task are up to, up to par. That's all that matters. And there's actually no, there's very few synonyms that can be drawn between any particular postgraduate level education and what I described. There are some, and again, they tend to be linked to those that are so purely objectively intellectually rigorous that the synonym exists. So, for example, if we talk about the the, 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 the problem-solving ability of an individual who has a PhD in some realm of mathematics, there's a much greater probability that Everyone with a Ph.D. in that same subdomain of mathematics is a phenomenal analytical problem solver. There's a higher probability we can assign to that than in another domain in which we simply cannot use the same sets of objective criteria, which is to say to state that everyone with a Ph.D. in sub -sub subdomain of history is an excellent academic in that domain, there's there's a much lower probability associated with that, due t- due to how um, subjective and p- peripheral and superfluous and multivariate these processes become when we drift away from the, for example, the purely mathematical. And in those that are closer to the purely mathematical, tend to hold the same gravity, which is why, for instance. Theoretical and mathematical physics is essentially directly linked. And we go closer to those. Robbie, it's essentially... It can be reduced down to... What is it? What are the dynamics... That allows one or not to bullshit their way to success? And so in that context, what we know is... in In contexts... Of say physics or mathematics, you simply cannot bullshit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You you will be exposed almost immediately if you have a lack of knowledge in one of these domains. At the very least, amongst a group of your peers. However, in, in so many other domains, because of compensating variables, and again, you know the, the political leveraging and the social networking. You get farther and farther removed from that assurance in which you can have people in what are collectively sort of consensusly agreed, even though it might be completely fallacious, to be in high esteemed positions in academia, in sport, in business, in the military, that by many different objective standards are incompetent.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly
1: that just simply needs to be understood this is not a, this is not an attack on any particular domain just this knowledge needs to be understood what space does one have available to them to bullshit their way to some level of notoriety and what other spaces disallow that probability
0: yeah i mean you know I, i've lost count of the amount of times and it's probably similar in your situation but again i don't want to speak for you but the amount of times you know i've met a fellow peer in the field and, and they said they they went in to see such and such organization and you know they'd be like you wouldn't believe how bad it was they'd say to you you know they've just you know I, I, this is a world class organization and some of the people who are in there and it's like yeah, yeah i've i've been there i've seen it it's and again it's that saying is it isn't what you know it's who you know unfortunately um and as as you're alluding to, I mean, just because someone has experience or a reputation, it doesn't equal expertise, and that's one thing I've always taken away from you is that experience doesn't equal expertise, and I mean it's one of the premises of this whole conversation we're having right now as well. But uh, I don't know, it, it, I'd say that's happened many times yourself too, where someone's reported to you about an organisation they went to visit or see, and the internal workings were very subpar with the personnel who were there, and again, it's not because of what the actual personnel know, uh, and and that their knowledge has been objectified against what is known, it's just more so they just knew who they were friends with, whoever was in the position to hire them.
1: That's that's the that's the nepotism. I, I have a unique ability, as in the realm of consulting space that I operate in, as a theor, theorist, which crosses these domains of the governing dynamics that. For example, in in the last three months, I've consulted, to give you an idea of the spectrum, with owners of American professional sports teams, administration, management, head sport coaches, assistant sport coaches, and the realms in which... I consult have spanned the domains In in one instance it might be cultural and another psychological and another technical skill foundation just working away through the governing dynamics and just just on an objective from, from an objective reference frame what what I can attest towards is simply the the, the truth of my criticisms in the governing dynamics of of what exists is just simply a lack of knowledge. Mm. And it's an, it's an objective claim with no malintent, no more than if I'm describing to you the color of the leaves and the trees that I'm seeing. There's no other attachment to it other than this is what I'm seeing, take it for what it's worth. And in the case of, you know, when I use the, I use the word competent and incompetent frequently, And usually people would associate incompetence with with some level of personal attack and incendiary intention, and that is not the way that I use it. For me, it is a purely objective reference frame, which is to state if we agree that subject matter competence in a particular field consists of working knowledge, assimilated knowledge of A, B, C, and D – and if i only show an individual under analytical review or sufficient analysis that i only know c and i do not know a b or d i'm incompetent and that is the context in which i use the word it's just a simple statement of the of the, of the facts and what 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 I'm encouraging the conversation to consist of, you know, for example, I was one one of these owners of professional sport leagues. I was explaining how the you should not have a strength coach because the profession should not exist. And the only reason it does exist is because this damaging bifurcation developed over time because there was no basis of critical thought being applied to the task at hand. And it's the reason why the same bifurcation did not occur in so many other professions, in which the operational leader does not pass off a component of operations to someone else in whom they actually don't understand what it is they're doing, that they, they just trust that they do. And, and you're familiar with all the analogies I've given that it's absolutely irrational to think that any executive chef is not a subject matter expert in food preparation prior to being cooked. That's just an absurdity. Similarly, it's an absurdity to, to think of a surgeon who is incompetent or unknowledgeable at all modes of preparing the patient say for an incision and we just go down the list of operational leadership in other domains in which if you attempt to fragment the skill sets underneath them in such a way that they no longer have an understanding or have very little understanding of one of them. You either get yourself a logical fallacy or one of the domains in which the only reason that exists is because the leadership is relying upon a multivariate process that compensates for their lack of knowledge. So politics is another example. Different types of b- business leadership is another example. It's not just sport that is guilty of this damaging effect of allowing operational leaders to not have knowledge over what constitutes their leadership. But, but what it just so happens to be what's worse about that in sport is the cumulative effects of the damage of having these factionalized departments that are engineering load that impacts the neuromuscular structural mechanical systems of the athletes. So that's just what makes it that much worse in sport as compared to almost any other analog that shares a similar level of dysfunction. So I was explaining this to an owner and every time, as you can imagine, this is, this is a dismantling of a belief system because you know, you're getting your masters in the subject matter. And I'm guessing that the predominance of people who listen to your podcast come from the profession that I am arguing should not exist. And so it's invariable that there's a lot of belief systems being challenged when I make my argument. And what's important is that the response to this happening is, is, is rational and not irrational as would otherwise be the result of an emotional defense mechanism that is all too prevalent. And so in this consulting that I do, it is just a constant endeavor to negotiate this landscape of belief systems being challenged. Most recently, it was with a general manager of a professional sports team just earlier this week where I opened the conversation with I want you to prepare yourself because I'm going to be challenging what undoubtedly are many of your belief systems. And it's, it's important that you know this out the gate in order that you can derive as much as possible from what I'm about to say and otherwise not raise, raise the bulwarks of your perceptual defenses so high that you just miss out on the opportunity because you're, so emotionally offended by the fact that I just deconstructed your entire work experience into one big fallacy. So this, it's simply the importance of this conversation being had Robbie that, that more r- rational, thoughtful cognitive energy is directed towards it because the, the argument that I've made in the book and the, the, the logic behind the argument is extraordinarily difficult to refute. And if I may say so m- myself, that's the reason that it makes for a good theory mm-hmm. because it, it's very difficult to refute it given the way I substantiate it with logical thinking, critical thought. That And, and, and that is the basis of which, you know, we're, I'm 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 throughout this conversation I'm working through I'm going around I'm circling I'm coming back to this does all pertain to the very apprentice the very premise of mentor apprentice it just so happens to be that for the reasons I've explained thus far I would not encourage anyone to pursue being an apprentice due, due to what has been explained thus far the knowledge that is developable culturally coupled with the, the recognition of what resonates most within individuals and working towards those, those, that would be my recommendation to the, to the question, James, how do I go about doing this then? If, if hypothetically it's okay, James, I'm, I'm, I'm a 16 year old and I, I, it's resonated with me what you've said. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to pursue university or postgraduate. I'm just, I'm just going to develop a, as much knowledge as I can in a particular subject field, and then attempt to pursue a profession in that. W- what we'd have to ascertain is that they're pursuing a profession that allows for that, because it just so happens to be that many professions you, you just cannot get your foot in the door without the credentials which is a shame because that's restricting a lot of otherwise extraordinary talent and aptitude that for whatever reason does not have the credentials. So that has to be understood. Invariably, whether it's going through the formal educational system or not, the same truth holds. Broaden your understanding of all things culturally as deep and as wide as possible and then that which you spend most your time on afterwards, in my argument, should be that which resonates with you most strongly.
0: The problem is not that we don't have enough information. It is that we don't have enough knowledge. No,
1: it's resources. I
0: have that information. Yeah, this resources isn't the problem. You, you said the quote, the David Deutsch quote in front of your book.
1: Yeah, it's the first page of the book. The limiting factor is not resources, for they are plentiful, but knowledge, which is scarce.
0: Yeah, definitely agree with that. And two uh, sort of just final thoughts. One, actually, you don't need to answer because you, you actually had answered this. Um, I'm nearly sure it was on Doug Tietan's podcast because um, an area that, that I've always been fascinated with was like this concept of, okay, basically putting things into action is that you can get people who are aware – of certain factors um but for whatever reason they still just will not put it into action so again you can get people again who are intellectually so intelligent like i mean the example i always use is somebody who is overweight and they could have intricate knowledge about like mechanisms of obesity from anything to do with thermodynamics to hormonal dysregulation or whatever and they could understand everything about it and the whole uh nutrition and exercise component but yet they still don't incorporate or do anything about it in their life and so it's this kind of you know
1: which is ex- which is explained by psychology yeah
0: uh, but but I, uh, and Doug kind of alluded this and i'm very sure it was on a podcast alluded the question to you like you know like how do people go about bridging that gap in a sense you're just like it just comes back again to knowledge <laughs> so uh because yeah you,
1: you, you can't get away from it
0: yeah so i, I just wanted to i just wanted to, to, to sort of Uh, approach that here just nearly it's more so for my own consolidation on on that area um and then the uh the other uh second thing i want to say was that obviously because we've we've known each other a while i'm I'm well aware of your work when you say things like or when you state things like you know there should be no such thing as strength and conditioning coach i am in full agreement with that and and there is people who listen to this podcast who who are quote unquote their titles are in their workplace, strength and conditioning coach, who would also agree with that. But it's 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 not so much nearly the profession; it's the world we live in of economics. Because they're like, well, I can't turn around and quit this job because I can't pay for rent or food in my family. So it's it's a deeper issue than like the actual professional strength and conditioning. It's it's a it's an economic issue. It's how we it's how we run the world is the problem.
1: Well, the, the, you know, as, as you know, and, and, and hopefully what you, your listeners realize if they've looked into what I you know, write about, speak about, my uh, criticisms are only part of what I do. Solutions are are the other one. Mm-hmm. And in the, it, it, let's put it this way, the total, I, I, the totality of consultations I've done for people who are actually strength coaches, part of that consultation has been very strong encouraging, encouragement for them to become sport coaches. Yeah. The reason is because in the traditional sense, there is such a finite amount of time that any achievements can be made under the domains in which most people associate with what does a strength coach do. What happens is... Along the way, not only is there a competitive demand for resources in going after those means in comparison to what's occurring in the other end of the spectrum regarding under the domain of the sport coach, also the finite room for the expression of those components in the sport act, which is to state that once you get to the highest levels of sport, which is, it's not where all, but most of the consulting I do is at the international or professional level. At that stage, it is almost inconceivable that anything the strength coach does has anything to do with the outcome of the athlete or the sports team, Mm -hmm. which is the reason why you could have someone who is extraordinarily incompetent doing that role and still being associated with a championship athlete or team. The same thing holds true on the sport coaching realm, which I've explained already. The problem then is say that you get strength coaches who realize okay I get it the the basis of my entire education was effectively backwards as a matter of fact let me tangent on that for a second Robbie Elon <laughs> Musk gave probably the greatest one paragraph example of my argument in in an interview actually I posted it on social media Elon Musk started his, his own school for his children because of the criticisms that he had of elementary school at the time. This was maybe five, seven years ago. And the reason, the basis on which he started it was to create an environment that he believed is the actual environment that young people should be exposed to in school that links up with the state of the brain and how they learn and what resonates with them, et cetera. So because he's a very wealthy individual, he started his own school. He he recruited one of the teachers from one of the schools where one of his children was attending who agreed with him and is now working at the school that he started. And the reporter asked him, so so why did you do this? And essentially, I'm I'm paraphrasing now, he explained just how wrong our education system is. He said, let's talk about an engine. He says, what we currently do... And, Robbie, this is what you're part of, undoubtedly, as a postgraduate student. What Every every coach of any type, sport coach, strength coach, uh, particularly strength coaches, have been part of, is what Musk explains. So here we have an engine. How do we go about teaching it? What, what, What we're now doing is we're forming an analog between the engine and sport. Now, the way most education works is... This is a screwdriver and let's, let's have a course about what the screwdriver is for. And this is a wrench. Let's have a course about what the wrench is for. So similarly in the education of a strength coach, which according to my argument should not exist in the first place. What we all know existing is these are mechanisms of metabolism. This is how it works. These are mechanisms of mechanics. This is how that works. These are mechanisms of force velocity implications. This is that course. These are mechanisms on cell biology. This is how that works. And you, and you go through all the constituent domains. You get, you're getting an analog of what he described in this dysfunctional context. He says instead, because this is a very inefficient way to learn, you begin with the engine. And then you say, let's take it apart. What do we need to take it apart? Oh, that's what a screwdriver is for. What do we need to take this apart? Oh, that's what a wrench is for. So it's completely flipping the process, which is the entire basis of my, the governing dynamics, working backwards for sport it itself. So what essentially what no strength coach is a product of is an education that is utterly drenched in every conceivable quantifiable aspect of every conceivable sport. That is not the basis of the strength coach education. And it must be according to the, you know, Musk is enlightened to enough to, to, to see this immediately and actually start his own school. And so similarly, if I was building the education of a sport coach, there could be no opportunity to diverge into strength coaching. It would simply be that in the process Developing the competency of a sport coach, such such as what I explain, is a theoretical curriculum in the governing dynamics. You begin with the structure of sport itself, and as you begin to derive from that, you then see, aha, there is a sensory motor component to this. I need to understand neurophysiology. Aha, there's a psychological component to this. I need to understand the psychomotor process. Aha, physics underpins biomechanics and explains all motion.
2: Mm.
1: I need to understand something about that. Aha, this is the physiological effects of cumulative workloads. I need to understand something about physiology. So it's it's a complete reversal of the way courses are introduced and it only follows the most sensible logic that you're starting with the task itself, and only deriving from that as needed.
0: It'd be great if people, in terms of the heads of courses, institutions, explained explained it in in that way, in terms of you know re, you know reverse engineering. Like what I find happens an awful lot is that you get people who are disseminating this information and they falsely believe that the audience that they're talking to know what they're talking about in terms like they'll say these certain things that are known. So like, for instance, you've talked about Karl Popper and you've mentioned it. it what's the word Empiric. Im- imperial in imperial, it's not, it's not imperialism pronounce it though.
1: Empiricism.
0: Empiricism. Like, what is that, James? I don't. I I've heard of Karl Popper, and I I know I'm aware who he is, but like there's people listening like what what like what is that? And then
1: that's what a Google searches for, Robbie.
0: Oh, I I know, yeah, but I'm just saying like that's that 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 is an issue I do see in, in terms of like there's just like I think a lot of people think that when they present information, and it's not it's not up to the the individual who's disseminating that information necessarily, but I think there's just a lot of missed information or the point that someone's trying to get across isn't being fully consumed because the individual doesn't have the is lacking the foundational knowledge to make heads or tails of that information.
1: I'll tell you the you know it what it points towards is a the extent to which that exists would be a misconception that it's the responsibility of say the speaker to offer a a caveat to, you know, every third word they say, which is to say such and such, look it up. Here's the reference. Google it. The the what should occupy the headspace of anybody listening, to, for example, to anyone else who is not already clear on absolutely everything they're saying, that it is in everyone's best interest to look up the subject matter, which they do not yet understand. Mm. This is only the logical conclusion. This is something that I do all the time. It's just that, you know, as you're aware, I I, I don't read or or listen to anything related to, to sport for about the last six or seven years. I, I only derive information from elsewhere: arts, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, gastronomy, you name it. And I'm constantly looking up information because someone's explaining something, they mention a word, whatever it is, I, I don't understand it. I look it up. I learn. I self-teach. And this is something that anybody should do. And it, clearly it just becomes inefficient for anyone speaking, for example, to define every term they're using mid-sentence. And so that that's something that I, I hear myself say that, and, and I would think that I'm speaking to a group of six-year-olds. So it's, it's a shame to think that this this type of message would would apply to, to adults who are not already aware that you're not going to be understanding everything that someone else is speaking about, particularly as it regards subject matter that you're not already keen to. And thusly, the onus of responsibility is on the listener to look it up and self-educate.
0: Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it is it is up to the, the speaker who's disseminating information to be like, you know, defining every every term that they're assuming the audience won't know. I, I understand that to a degree, but it's nearly, it's nearly another point I'm trying to make is that even in third degree level courses, like it's almost as if the foundations are just brushed over very, very, very quickly. I mean, like for instance, like just even like basic anatomy physiology with doctors, they're like, oh yeah, I did that in first and second year. And it's just like, you remember any of it or like no it's just like 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 what about the autonomic nervous system We're like yeah we touched on that first year it's like that system's kind of like really important to have a good knowledge of you know that because it's like yes <laughs> it like regulates so much shit in the system it's like our main regulatory system and it's just like yeah I, I suppose like just like stuff like that in terms of like i've, I've heard dan fast say too you know he used to say what athletes used to coach it's kind of like you know assuming assuming uh what was known was known, and he's like, but it wasn't, I really had to break things back to such basics with some, some athletes, you know, and, again, and that kind of nearly circles around to our whole conversation that just because an athlete uh, can do something amazing doesn't necessarily mean they know a lot about it, I mean, the example with Dan Faft again would be like Donovan Bailey, Dan, or Dan would all say that Donovan was not a really, really good athlete, but yet, I mean, he ran an unbelievable 100 and notes. He was a gold medalist in 96. But yeah, like, Dan was like, he was a disaster. The man couldn't even walk properly, let alone fucking, you know.
1: Well, you know, you, you, you bring up Dan, and, you know, I I'm, I'm I met Dan in 2012 when I was volunteering with one of the other national team coaches for UK athletics. And I had some great conversations with, with Dan. And so he's a great example because almost everybody, well, certainly everybody in the track community knows. That name, and certainly many coaches outside of the track community know. And, and a good example there is—I'll I'll use Dan as an example. So, so, so Dan's athletes have a list of high achievement, world and Olympic level championship. Now, to so, so to give to to put a you know a name to a face to the argument that I've made here regarding the empiricism, what I'm stating is that. <clears throat> Dan Path's knowledge has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he has coached X amount of world champion and in the case of collegiate national champion and at the Olympic level, Olympic champion. It has nothing to do with the Olympic world and national achievements of his athletes. Absolutely nothing. What it has to do with is his explanatory knowledge. So when it's, Dan, I have a question on this. Dan, I have a question on that. Dan, what do you think about this? What about this subject matter? His explanatory knowledge is the indicator of his understanding. And it is, going back to the original argument, it would be false for anyone to assume by affirming the consequent, which is to say by affirming the fact that he has X amount of Olympic gold, silver, bronze medalists, national champions. It would be false to affirm that as a synonym, which is to say because of all these athletes and all these achievements, he must be an excellent coach. He must be a knowledgeable coach. Now, you and I both know, in fact, most people do that. And it just so happens to be that Dan Path is an extraordinarily knowledgeable individual. It just so happens to be that the way that that works is that is not because of the fact that as athletes experienced these results,
2: yeah.
1: that's not the reason why that is. And that's what needs to be understood.
0: I think if people aren't getting that point at this stage, they're yeah, they're just not they're never gonna get it. But it's it is funny you mentioned that too because I had dinner with Dan during my internship at Altus. and um, I guess like I've been lucky enough in that I'm at a stage where I I just no matter who the individual is like could be it just doesn't matter I I will still never blindly accept what anyone says. And when I sat down to dinner with Dan, I was like Dan, you do realize there's times where. I know that you're fibbing a bit. Like I basically said that like, you're talking bullshit because you nearly feel obliged that you have to give an answer because you're just seen in, in such a, in such a, a, a you know, in, in such a huge light in most people's eyes. Um, that there is times I know that you're just kind of winging it. it you know, when there's when there's a question you're not a hundred percent sure on, but you you feel that you have to satisfy that individual for whatever reason. And like he just kind of said, yeah, I know, there is times where I just I make a best guess like, he's not, like, he's not, like, bullshitting, he he doesn't do it in a way to, like, for him, for him to be, like, it's not a, it's not an insecurity thing, it's almost as if he feels obliged, he has to, because, like, someone's traveled from Sweden to spend a week at Altus, and, like, he's, like, shit, I better, you know, I better make this worthwhile for this individual, so he kind of just, based off, like, his education information, he'll kind of just sprout off in a a sort of an answer, whereas, you know, like, he should have just basically said, I don't really know, or, you know what I mean, uh, and like you know, the people are kind of like, "Oh my God, that's amazing what he just said there." And I'm kind of like, like he is—he is, don't get me wrong—as you said, he is an excellent coach, he is all that. But it's some people can just become too accepting of "quote unquote" the gurus, you know. And, well, that,
1: that 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 goes back to a- anyone who is enamored by a statement that, let's say, is untrue or that has been dramatically embellished. That that can only be. The reason for that individual being enamored can only be one of two things, that they either just simply lack that specific subject matter knowledge and they're yeah. operating on a faith claim.
0: Yeah, that's what it is.
1: Or even if you don't have that subject matter knowledge, as I indicated to start with, if, you, if what you do have is the subject matter knowledge of logical discourse and effective arguments, that that gives you a great step towards discerning bullshit even though you don't have a complete grasp of the subject matter being discussed. Yeah. And so it's the it's the absence of both of those that that is what ultimately keeps I'm not I'm not talking about Dan here, just in general. Yeah. The, the the people who are monetarily successful, who are socially successful, if we talked about let's say being popular, are able to do so on the basis of complete bullshit is due to the percentage of people that are on the listening end or on the reading end void of both the subject matter knowledge and the knowledge of rational discourse, corrective re- reasoning, and argument.
0: Yeah. And I just want to say, just so we're clear on this, I don't want any of the listeners going off and like linking this to half saying, Robbie says you talk bullshit, that <laughs> like 95% of the time, like that, the man has. Like ex- like extremely logical rational answers and 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 he is an excellent coach and and, and again like no one should misconstrue what I said as an attack on Dan Fatt as or you or anything like that at all whatsoever just hope people like I actually love Dan he's 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 a very important person to me in my life um I'm just saying that at dinner that I did say that to him and he was like yeah there is times where I feel like I do have to wing an answer because I feel obliged to. And the people seemed to be satisfied with it. And like he was also, he was saying it in a way too that he was almost disappointed that people didn't like sort of take him up on it. You know, he's kind of like, you know, I'd rather if you were a little more, you know, self-reliant in your own thinking and challenge me a little bit, but you kind of just accepted what I said there. And um, so it, w- it was a great conversation I with Dan. So I want to make sure I got that clear. Uh, to well, the listeners.
1: It, it, it's important to be able to criticize, Robbie, and we're all fallible. Yeah. If you're a human being, you're fallible and no one is beyond criticism. Contrary to what certain dictatorial leaders would have you believe in certain countries of the world. And this is an important thing because any proposition that anyone or anything is beyond refute is by definition irrational.
2: Hmm.
1: You must be able to criticize any and all things because that is the only way for progress to occur. It's just that this day and age, criticism tends to be misconstrued as incendiary offensive name-calling when, in fact, in its most useful form in the context of knowledge creation and professional discourse is thoughtfully constructed. So as, to, so as to promote progress.
0: I'm gonna wrap up here soon because you probably need to go to the toilet. <laughs> uh, but um, just uh, I don't know if you read the book *Sapiens*, but um, in that, like, he talks about how, like, some of the myths, you know, cultural myths, basically, that we've just agreed upon were actually important for us as a species to cooperate and, and sort of get to where we currently are as as humans. So, like, what would your sort of thought process be on that? Because again, like, they like, and he brought in some deep questions in terms of like, for instance, m- we all say that murder is immoral, but he's like, there's no natural law to say that murder is immoral. He says we just agreed upon it. And he's just like it's the same with money. We just agreed upon a trust in money. He's like, well, and like he he also says he says I'm not saying that these are bad things. So he's like like these he's like just not like human rights is another one. He says. Human rights is a fiction. Like you, what you can't cut open a dead body and say, "Oh, look, there's human rights in there." It's not a tangible, objective thing. He's like, we just agreed upon it. And and he and again, he he doesn't say like these are like fictions bad. He's like they're actually very important in in us getting to where we are in revolution currently. He's just like just know that they're fictitious. They're made up.
1: It's fairly intuitive. I, I in, in no way am I diminishing the work of the book. I have not read that book, but th- these are intuitive principles, Robbie, because. It, it it's not a stretch for people to realize that, that for instance, the taking of a life is something that is intrinsic to all life on Earth. It, effectively, every certainly every carnivorous entity in uh, on Earth is a murderer of other life.
0: You you could make that argument about a herbivore too, because apparently plants are living organisms.
1: That's true. That's very true. That's very true. So, so given that, given that truth, what we agree then is it's perfectly natural for whatever reason, someone, instead of wanting to verbally disagree with a speaker to just shoot them in the face. There's nothing irrational about that in the grander scheme of the the, you know the human experiment. It's just that, as you said, what, what did effectively most societies this day and age on Earth agree upon? What they agreed upon is you know what? Let's make that illegal. So even though you might, for any other set of reasons, want to kill this person, let's just go ahead and make a steep set of consequences exist if you actually act on that impulse. And effectively, that's what m- makes for and th- the degrees of societal societal success that would be awarded to any culture have to do with just that type of thinking that acknowledges on one end, say, a truth- Of The human condition is simply a higher-order primate and on the other Stating all right now. How are we going to prevent complete chaos from happening? By having some some type of order I mean in and Robbie that is the human experiment you Mm -hmm. go from one culture to the next and you get somewhat of a different version of how of what these rules consist of and as a result you have different cultures emerging
2: Mm.
1: So I think it's really interesting subject matter to consider. and and like I said, I think it's relatively intuitive, even though most people on face value might not think of these terms. but I, I, I often I, I've had this notion driving. And I would encourage anyone else to have this thought experiment. I, don't, I do not own a car, but when I rent one for different types of work trips, Imagine how many times you're driving on a roadway in which oncoming traffic is not separated by an impenetrable barrier. Mm -hmm. Think of the implicit volatility there and just how infrequent head-on collisions occur for whatever reason. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: There's no law of nature preventing it from happening.
2: Yeah.
1: It's just that on the whole... All this volume of human traffic going back and forth on the different motorways of the different countries of the world, the the 99.9999999 percentile is not drifting into the oncoming lane of traffic, nor with intent driving into the oncoming lane of traffic. But I, there's no law preventing it.
0: I actually think about this all the time in terms of like getting a public bus. I'm like, why does this stop this bus driver just – driving this thing off the bridge into the river and killing all of us.
1: So there's, there's an infinite mode of thought experiments. One, you know, you know, the next time you're walking down the street, imagine just sort of sticking a knife in the the next person's throat who walks by you. And that would not be entirely unlike what happens in other realms of the animal kingdom all the time. Hmm. Some analog to that, something tantamount to that, to just some random killing that doesn't even, does not even involve nourishment. So there's all sorts of, this points towards what we discussed in the psychological preparation podcast. The set of possibilities must be assimilated because this points directly towards how one can psychologically prepare themselves for absolutely anything based upon what is actually possible it's just that within the parameters of societal convention we operate on the basis of guidelines that ultimately allows for whatever level to efficiency that does exist exist and you know we're all not eating each other
0: i think we'll uh cannibalism i think we'll, we'll wrap up on that point But uh, one final thing too, I'm not too sure how many 16-year-olds listen to this podcast. So uh, I meant to say that to you when you brought up the 16-year-old example earlier on. If there is a 16-year-old who's listened to this and can comprehend this podcast, I am jealous because I would have liked to have have had that opportunity at 16 years of age. Touche. Yeah. James, listen, this is an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, So we'll wrap it up there. I think we're just coming up to under two hours so time all slides by so guys uh for everyone listening i hope you truly enjoyed today's episode with james uh i sure did and for now i will talk to everyone soon take care be well and stay strong